Yeah. 
play button and it'll advance to the next light setting, okay? There you go. Stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice, a thousand generations sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's sing that together and on that day, and on that day, join the
God, may today be the day that we declare to everyone we come in contact with of how great you are. The hymn of heaven that Jesus is alive and he's provided salvation for us all. Thank you for your great love for us. There is none like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to find somebody you haven't talked to this morning and greet them. Let them know that Jesus is alive.
God, you are great and worthy to be praised. May we shout the hymn of heaven in our lives each and every day. That hymn that Jesus is Lord and he is our Savior. You gave us life beyond the grave. Holy is the Lord. May Jesus be praised here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Since last week. And I thank you for supporting him to encourage him he has done. Uh, Michelle and I had the opportunity to be down in Cancun, Mexico, uh, because our destination weddings create great opportunities for friends and family to spend enormous amounts of money uh, <laughs> to go to their wedding. So we were down there, and we were so concerned about not getting sunburned that we didn't even end up with a tan. But... Um, Anyway, good time to be away. Are we okay? Reset it? Like turn it off? Try it again. This could be an omen. It's supposed to stay away. Don't come back. We were better off without you. All right, we'll give it a shot. I'm really sorry about that. Hopefully it's not me hitting it. Okay. Well, today we have a very heavy message to address. David would say in Psalm 51:10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
We've been in a series about mandates. We're taking a pause this week to address a very serious concern that impacts every one of us in this room. All of you have heard the news about the Southern Baptist Convention scandal. So it's imperative that I address that today. I was on my way out of town when this 288-page report was released from Guidestone, uh, Guidepost Solutions. It was made public literally as I was leaving town. Since then, I've had a lot of time to think about it, and I will confess to you my thoughts are still quite scattered, and they're very unsettled. Upon learning of this report and reading about it, and of course we knew that this was coming, just a matter of what it would mean, but it literally made me sick. Just the day before this report was released, in the publication that I released to ministers all across the country and throughout various parts of the world, I referenced one of the men in a very uh, flattering manner, only to find that he would be one that was a part of the scandal. So as we begin trying to dissect this a bit so that we all can understand it and take and need to take, I'd like to read four passages of Scripture and then make a personal statement. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And you won't see it on the screens. Uh, I confess I struggled and struggled, and so I said just put Psalm 51, 10 on the screens, and that's all you'll see throughout this message. So I'll repeat when necessary to make these verses available. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth who had a lot of moral problems. A lot. And as he was writing to them, he referenced the Old Testament. And he noted the people of Israel out in the desert and all of the mistakes that they made and all of the times they rejected and rebelled against God. And he said to them, these things happened to them as examples and they were written down for us as warnings warnings. Look at these situations and be warned. And then in verse 12, because we can look back and we can look at others and we can say, well, too bad for them or they should have thought better. He says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It is imperative that we take a very humble position as we approach this subject, because any one of us could have fallen into the same category as these men and perpetrators that we will be addressing. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Genesis 4, 6 through 7. This is God speaking to Cain before he killed his brother Abel. As he was speaking to him, knowing very well what he was about to do, he gave this mandate to Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Remember, his, his offering was rejected by the Lord and Abel's was accepted. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That's God's statement to us all. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door of every one of our lives. None of us are excluded. One of the most interesting things that I have seen through the years is those who seem to be invincible fell. 
It has been a very difficult season of ministry for me over the last number of years to see people that I respected look to his examples, to see one after another, after another, after another to fall. And I will confess to you, it scares me because I know that I could fall as well. None of us are exempted. And that's why in Genesis 4, 6 through 7, we have this, this passage of Scripture that reminds us sin is crouching at the door of all of us. It's a reminder to take seriousness, to take seriously our faith and our desperate need for Christ. The third passage is found in Numbers chapter 32, verses 23, verse 23. If you're reading through the Bible, you, you ran into this verse a while back. You've heard it many times, and you may have wondered, where, what's the reference point of it? And Moses was speaking to the, to the tribe of Gad and Reuben. We're going to have a bunch of tribes around here uh, next week. Reuben, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and you remember the story? They, they decided that they wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. They weren't going to go into the promised land. They said, can, can this be our inheritance? And it's a great dialogue because Moses just goes off on him. And he unwinds this, 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 this big statement that, you know, you watched all of this happen before and you're going to do the exact same thing. And they say, wait, wait a second. We're just asking if we could have the land here. And yes, we'll go over and fight with everybody else. But when it's all over, can we come back? And then Moses said, oh, okay. I didn't realize that's what you're saying. And then he says, but, but. If you fail to do what you just said, you will be sinning against the Lord, and here it is, and you can be sure that your sin will find you out. Sin will find us out. Maybe not even in this lifetime, but we will all stand before a holy God. But many times in this life, just as we are seeing in this report from Guidepost Solutions, we see that sin does find us out. Sins that have been buried for many years, quite possibly. And then Romans 8, 8 and 29. And we know that in all things, him who have been called a purpose. That has confused the American church for many years. What is God's purpose? It's all going to work together for good. I'm going to retire with plenty of money. This illness is going to go away. This problem will be resolved. What is the goodness, the purpose of God? Often, over time, often overlooked verse. For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the purpose. In God's foreknowledge, he has predestined each and every follower of Christ to be shaped into the image of Christ, not to be just some clean-cut people that attend church. But the goodness of God, the purpose of God, the redemptive purpose of God, to take bad things and reshape them into the very image of Christ and the cross is a perfect example of that very thing. So now a personal statement after those four verses. Issues like this, when you see an entire denomination, the largest Protestant denomination in America, when you see issues like this that parallel what we have seen in the Catholic Church, when you see issues like this, it makes suspects of us all. And so I can say on my part and the part of the staff, there are no issues in Westgate that we are aware of. None. And if there were, we would bring it to the light.
To my knowledge, we have not had any abuse in our church, and we maintain boundaries that provide hopeful Several years ago, when Mike Pence was the Vice President of the United States, the media liked to poke fun at what was called the Mike Pence Rule, which was actually the Billy Graham Rule, in a room or a car or any place alone with another woman that was not his wife. Media thinks that's funny, ridiculous. Well, I will tell you personally that that's my policy as well. A number of years ago, there was a funeral that we were attending over at St. Jude's. You know where St. Jude's is? It's not even a mile from here. Chris, our secretary, both of us were going over there, and I told her, we can't ride together. We've worked together for two decades, but we drove separate cars from Westgate to St. Jude's and back just for this very reason. Does that mean I'm any better? Not at all. It's just a, a safeguard that we try to such things. And so in saying all of that, there are obviously blind spots. Is there something missing? Have we missed something in our church? The Department of Homeland Security launched a campaign in 2010 addressing terrorism, and the statement was, if you see something, say something. Friends, that needs to be the policy here. If you see something, say something. Do not let it sit in the darkness. Bring it to the light. Let leadership know so that it can be addressed in an appropriate way. The issue is that for over two decades, survivors of these abuses have been appealing to the Southern Baptist Convention to support, protect, and help them in what they said were legitimate abuses. But we now know that the leadership did not adequately address those abuses. It is easy to compare this to the Catholic Church, but there is a breakdown. Yes, same types of abuses took place in our denomination. But unlike the Catholic Church, we do not have an authority figure like the Pope. It's probably helpful for us to better understand a little bit of how Baptist governance works. Because this is an important issue for all of us. And, and some of you, uh, and I know many of you have come from and you've said, you know, I just like Westgate. I didn't, I didn't even know it was a Baptist church. I don't care if it's a Baptist church. I just, I just like the church. And we could easily say, well, why don't we just become a non-denominational church and then we won't have to deal with these issues. Non-denominational churches have to deal with them as well. And that's a little bit like the two guys who got inebriated they went out to the dock and they stole a boat and they were out in the middle of the lake and all of a sudden one of them complained and said, whoa, 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 we got a problem here. This boat has a hole in it. It's leaking and we're sinking. And the other guy said, so what? It's not our boat. Well, we can respond like that and say, this is not our boat. Let's just do something else. But this is our boat. Friends, this is my boat. On June 24th of 1959, I became a Southern Baptist. I was born on a Wednesday, and the following Sunday, I was sitting in the little display case at Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, one of the premier churches where my parents attended. We used to have stuff like that, where you had a new baby, and you brought them, had a big display case, and you set them out there like they do at the hospital, and everybody looked and said, what? Did I say something? Okay. 
I thought maybe I, I said something inappropriate. There I was. And my parents raised me as a Southern Baptist. They, they were not diehard church attenders in the beginning. Uh, but when I was six, my dad felt that God was stirring in his heart a call. Same age as me. At the age of 17, he felt like God was calling him into ministry, but he that. And when I was six, he said, it's time to pursue that. We moved to, and he enrolled in one of our six Southern Baptist seminaries. As a little kid, I remember walking through Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. There, I would go out to Arizona. Part of, part of my upbringing is in a Southern Baptist church, a small Southern Baptist church in which you could fit everybody in this section right here. And I didn't understand what a Southern Baptist was. I just knew that that's what we did, that this was a church, and we were Southern Baptists. Didn't, couldn't even begin to explain that. Then I went off to college, to a Southern Baptist college, Grand Canyon College at the time, with 1,200 students. Then I received my education, undergraduate degree, at a Baptist, Southern Baptist college. And then I returned to Southwestern Seminary. And I received a master's degree and then a doctoral degree from Southwestern Baptist Seminary, as most of our staff has. And then I served in a Southern Baptist church for 10 and a half years. And prior to that, I served as a chaplain to a hospital over in San Antonio and Baptist Hospital Baylor uh, Hospital up in Dallas, where I was actually born. Baptist is who I am. To abandon Southern Baptist, but I would certainly hope that we can do infinitely better than we have done. Largest Protestant denomination in America, 47,000 churches, over 14 million members. And where it breaks down, you might think, well, surely someone at the top can tell us what to do. But we don't have anybody at the top that tells us what to do. Some of you that aren't Southern Baptists, that don't have a Southern Baptist, just momentarily to understand Baptist polity. Every Southern Baptist church is autonomous. That means that we can function as we deem best. And we, are a, we work in cooperation with all of these other churches. So you have the local autonomous church, the local church, that's us, Westgate. You could vote to fire me right now, and nobody's going to call you from the Southern Baptist Convention and say, that's not right. That's your choice. We make decisions right here in our church. We have a local association, and with Southern Baptist churches in this region, cooperate together to try to advance the kingdom of God. And then we have a state convention, and it used to be that every state had one convention. And then, I don't even know how to say this, but we had a split among Southern Baptists, necessary things that needed to be corrected. Some of the very people that led out in that are the ones whose names are now on the list of what's going on here. Unbelievable. And so it's more difficult to cooperate together, but we have a state convention that we cooperate. We cooperate with the Baptist Joint Convention of Texas. There's also the Southern Baptists of Texas. We cooperate with them. We're just not aligned with them. And then you have the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention meets once a year at an annual meeting. This year will be out in Anaheim, and I want just because of the gravity of this issue. 
will meet this year, make decisions, and then those decisions are carried out by what's called the executive committee, 86 representatives that carry out the day-to-day -day actions of what is necessary for the national convention, and there is a CEO president of the executive committee that serves over that. That's where most of this problem was buried. And so, saying all of that, we now know that this report reveals that information was not handled transparently by the executive committee that is designed to carry out the activity of the national convention throughout the year. They had names, they had issues. They were disregarded, they were ignored, they were not addressed. Last year, at the Southern Baptist Convention, because for two decades now, Survivors have been coming forward and saying, there is a problem that needs to be addressed. And it wasn't addressed. So last year, at the National Convention, which was at Nashville, a task force was put together to investigate the problem. They hired an independent organization called Guidepost Solutions to do a thorough, independent investigation of what was being reported. I would like to read to you just a couple of statements from the report by the task force. It just says that they've done it, and I'm just giving you some cliff note highlights. You can pull this up and read it online. If you want to read the entire document from the from guidepost, it is 288 pages. Uh, president of one of our seminaries said he spent over seven hours reading through it. A thorough and independent investigation, they say. And they come to this statement, and we're going to come back to this statement in just a few minutes. We implore our Southern Baptist family to respond to this report with deep repentance and commitment in the ongoing moral demands of the gospel as it relates to sexual abuse. We acknowledge that any act of repentance requires ongoing, deliberate, dedicated obedience and sacrifice. Another statement they say, we must, and we do this so well, we must resist the temptation Look away to find the easy scapegoats for what was, undercover, uh, what was uncovered in this report. And instead, we must ask, what could have been done better, and what should we do now? And then these are some of the recommendations that we will talk about and vote on at the National Convention in Anaheim in two weeks. Uh, not two weeks, next week. We recommend that an Abuse Reform Implementation Task, implementation task Force be put together and that an initiative would be brought and established within three years. All of these reforms will be brought to the convention by next year. Establish a process in which churches can be alerted, because that's another part of the problem. And friends, if you ever get a recommendation, a call from, and I have these all the time, people call and they ask for a recommendation of somebody that somehow they've gotten my name. Take that seriously. People are not really doing background or reference checks, sadly. And they call me, and I feel like as I talk to them, I could say, this guy is far as a murderer, and nothing has been done, and they will say, well, that's what we thought. We're really looking forward to having him on our staff. That is, that, is, that is about what they say. Their decision is already made. It doesn't matter what you have to say. And I would just say, take that seriously if there's anything that needs to be addressed because part of the problem is some of these perpetrators were moving from church to church to church. And we need to establish a way to monitor that. But the problem is we do not have 
central intelligence agency. Do that with autonomous churches. A couple of those were even in the Golden Triangle area. How do we do that and take that seriously? Website, background checks. As we think about Vacation Bible School, some of you just like, I hate this background check stuff. That is so important. We don't want any of our children exposed to someone that has a checkered history. And I want to implore you as a church. You know, we, we depend a lot on Vacation Bible School for people from outside the community to come in. And that is a good ministry opportunity, but is that really what we want to do? Depend on others from outside of the church to run our Vacation Bible School because we can't get enough disciples within our church. And I'm moving away from the word volunteers. You heard me say that uh, a couple months ago. Any word that ends with tears is probably not a good way for us to guide the church. We want to be disciples that say, we believe in shepherding the next generation into fully, full discipleship of Jesus Christ, and we will do everything that we can. So when you have that background check, please don't groan about it. I groan that we have to have them. I groan about the things that we can't do around church anymore because of the culture in which we live. But that's where we live. Uh, establishing experts for training at the state level, Provision for survivors, my goodness, we need to be making sure that these survivors are taken care of. And training within the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, and our six seminaries as we prepare for the future. Well, that's just a part of the report. We all want to see issues like this in countless other We wish that they would. And there's a tendency to believe that there's just one lever that we need to pull, and it'll resolve it. There's one law. There's something that we can pass. There's something that we can do that's going to change all of this. We're reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that the laws are not for those law-abiding citizens. They're for the lawless. And the lawless will work around the problem to get what they want. When we always go back to this idea that there's some little something that we're, everybody has missed for all these years, and if we do this, it will resolve it. Go back to American history. Anybody remember what the 18th in our building? It's against the sale of alcohol. That if we make it a prohibitive, for the sale of alcohol to take place in the United States, we will eradicate alcohol and we won't have the problem anymore. Anybody know what the 21st Amendment is? Repealing of the 18th Amendment. Because we learned that you can make all kinds of legislative statements, but people will still do what they're going to do. There's always going to be the outliers. Most people in the Southern Baptist Convention are godly people seeking after God, but there's always going to be the outliers that believe that they're above the law, and any of us could fall prey to that because Satan is always looking for an opportunity to take us down. Howard Hendricks said something that stays in my mind. He was a beloved professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he said that Satan will wait in the weeds 40 years to take down one of God's ministers. He will stand in the weeds for 40 years for the one opportune time to take him out. And that keeps me up at night. 
we need to recognize that what we have is a heart problem. It is a heart problem. And only God can create a clean heart within us. Our president reminds us of this, but not in the way that I'm... reminds us of this continuously. He uses it for emphasis. How many times have you heard our president say, for God's sake, he's right. For God's sake, that's the only way that involved. A clean heart, oh God. Who was that? The very best king in Israel's history. And the very best king moved through the decimation of several of the Ten Commandments and could have legislated a cover-up, but it wouldn't have worked. And finally, after a year of running from God, he said, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. In 1992, a very unusual situation took place in a department store in Portland, Oregon. The manager called the security officer and said, I don't understand what's happening. He said, earlier today, someone came in and they confessed to me that they had switched the price tags once and they wanted to make it right. An hour later, another person came in confessing to shoplifting Trust me, then do what you must do. The manager looked at the security officer and said, what in the world is happening? And his simple response was, Billy Graham is in town. Hearts were being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're looking for the solution to problems, you're it. God wants to bring revival and renewal, clean, new, restored hearts. We have nationalized Christianity to believe that it is a part of a political process, and we need to raise up within the church people that are seeking God. It doesn't mean that you're not a part of the political process. You should be. We all should be. The solution is found in a broken, contrite heart. Well, you can imagine at Cancun that I had the opportunity to sit around a pool. And when a pastor sits around a pool, he thinks a really just crazy thing. And so I want to share with you something that I thought about, and here's the deal. It is real easy for us to be focused on somebody else, and there's a problem out there that needs to be addressed. G.K. Chesterton was the one who told us, in response to what's wrong with the world, do you remember what he said? I am. What's wrong with the world? Could it be that the church that God has ordained to be salt and light has become saltless and dark? Focusing on other issues that seem very important in the time. But to move it away, I, I tell you, I think, I think for Southern Baptist, pride has become an issue.
We have taken pride in being the denomination that baptizes more people and shares the gospel with more people. And that we have the, the largest sending agency in the world with missionaries going throughout the world and missionaries scattered throughout the United States. And we've taken pride in how many people we can baptize and how many people we can lead to Christ and how big our churches can be and how much money we can raise. And I think, honestly, we've taken our eyes off of Christ. The writer of Hebrews told us in Hebrews chapter 12 that we must fix our eyes. That means of Christ. And so could we all just take a really hard look in the mirror at ourselves? So just think of the pool as the kingdom of God. I want to lead us into a moment of prayerful repentance. That's what was said in the task force. The task force asked of the 47,000 plus Southern Baptist churches, would you repent They're not saying that you're guilty. They're saying we just need to have a brokenness among our people. God is breaking us. And will we crush us or will we allow, like David, for God to create a clean heart within us? So would you do an evaluation of just thinking, and this is maybe a really goofy illustration, maybe really bad, but if it gets us to the point of thinking where we are spiritually, it's accomplished its goal. Think of a swimming pool as the kingdom of God. Where are you? Find your place in the pool. Are you in a lounger? A lot of people sit in a lounger. Either under the shade or in the sun, they have no place. They're just glad the pool is there so they can sit by it. Then there's those in the water. It's nice refreshment. But they, that's as far as they go. And some are playing in the shallow end. They're having a lot of fun, they're content, but they have no intention of entering into the deep end. Some do the cannonball off the diving board. They love making a big splash so that everyone will take notice. Some are in the hot tub. They just want to be warm and comfortable. I can say this, and I did this very thing. Some are like lifeguards. They just like blowing the whistle to keep others in line. I did that. I had to learn that. I like the power of the whistle. And I remember the other lifeguards kind of talking behind my back about how I was a power broker. And I, I had to learn that, you know, I am. I, I like that whistle. I like being, t- don't, you're not, you don't run. Some people, that's the way we respond in the kingdom of God. We're blowing the whistle to everybody else. And then those who dive for treasures in the deep end. Our kids used to have swim uh, parties over at the, the West End Y many years ago. And you could have them either in the wintertime or the summertime because of that bubble over the back, for those of you that remember the, the ancient times. And we would throw money into the pool for the kids of the party to dive in and to, to go for. And the big coins went down to the deep end. And when you dive in the deep end for the treasures, it's a little bit scary because you're going all the way. Do you have enough breath to go all the way down and come back and get the treasure at the same time? It can be hard. Sometimes you have to do it a couple times to get down there. It can be painful because sometimes it, the pressure gets your ears, but it's always worth, worth the effort. So let me ask you again, where are you around the pool of God's kingdom? Are you sitting in a lounger by the pool with your feet dangling? in the shallow end, 
perfectly content? Are you the cannonballer off the board in the hot tub? Are you the lifeguard with a whistle? Are you diving for the deep treasures, the treasures in the deep end? Where are you? Friends, I'm going to call us to pray. I want to say, first of all, before we do that, I love y'all. I've been noticing my notes and listening to myself later on. I don't say that the way I used to all the time, and I'm sorry. I love you guys. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. Thank you for letting me be a part of this church. Just, I'm honored to be a very small, minuscule part of this church. So I love you guys, and my hope is that God would do a work in our lives, that we wouldn't just be talking about a Southern Baptist report, but it'd be a wake-up call to say, are we really taking our faith seriously? Does it consume us, or is it just an add-on to who we are? I'm going to invite you to pray here at the front. You can kneel where you are. I'm going to ask you to respond physically, though. We don't do that a lot at Westgate. We don't physically move around much. And, and I think some that, sometimes that's to our detriment. I don't ask you to do that all the time. But sometimes when we just sit there, it makes a statement that we truly haven't been moved and that we're ready to go. Remember, we moved our service. So we have plenty of time. Some of you didn't like that because you're blowing the whistle. We're supposed to be out here at 1130. Would you respond? Those crosses remind that God loves us and he created us to have a relationship with him. And our sin is so serious that only God could solve the problem. If we could solve it, Jesus did. And we can respond to what he has done on the cross by either acknowledging he is the Savior and repenting, knowing that there's nothing we can do. We can't go join a church. We can't be baptized. We can't do any good works because when the sun goes down, we'll be dead. So the only thing we can do surrender our life to Christ. Or we can respond like the other man on the cross who said, I, I, I think I'm good. It's not turning out the way that I had planned, but I think when I get on the other side, I'll figure it out. I, I don't need you. Friends, what are you doing? Are you fully surrendered to him? If you've never received Christ, I would invite you to, to voice a prayer similar to this. On a regular basis, I surrender all that I am and all that I have to you. Can you honestly say that? Can you honestly say that you have surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? Everything. So let's pray together, and then I'll invite you to respond. Pray here, pray over there, pray at the benches in the back, kneel where you are, pray at the cross. Let's pray. God, we... individually, collectively, corporately of our desperate need for you. And we confess, even as we consider this denomination that we're so grateful to be a part of that, that has its brokenness, that has sin that has been unrepented of, that we recognize that we are Southern Baptists. This isn't just somebody out there. We are. And we want to be a part of the solution of being repentant obedient followers of you. We may never, 
never done anything to lead to this report. But maybe we're just not where we need to be. So create in us a clean heart. Lord, for any in this room and listening online that have never received Christ, might they recognize their desperate need for you and voice a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, how true that is, we only have one life. And it's going by fast. May we live it fully surrendered to you, following hard after you. And now, Lord, thank you for this church, this congregation, these wonderful people that you are at work in their lives. We invite you, Lord, corporately to do a fresh work in our lives. Lord, cause us to dive deeply into the deep end. Scary, hard, sometimes painful, but to, to find the deep treasures that we have in you. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. Let's respond as God leads. I'll be at the cross. If you have additional needs and want to talk to us after the service in the, in the atrium at the um, uh, Connection Center, meet us out there. Let's respond as a church. gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to keep. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast
be broken before you. It's through your love for us that we can find forgiveness. May we seek you each and every day so that you can create in us a clean heart and renew our spirit so that we can be the salt and light that you're calling us to be. Thank you for your love for us go from this place, may we go with hearts ready to follow hard after you each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.